You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. Dr. Jones, now you, you must understand that this is all strictly confidential, right? I understand. Uh, <clears throat> Yesterday afternoon, our European sections intercepted a, a German communique that was sent from Cairo to Berlin. Now, to you see, Cairo, over the last two now, years, the Nazis have had teams of archaeologists running around the world looking for all kinds of religious artifacts. Hitler's a nut on the subject. He's crazy. He's obsessed with the occult. And right now, apparently, there's some kind of German archaeological dig going on in the desert outside of Cairo. Now, we've got some information here. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Continuing with our theme of humans as monsters, in this episode we'll be taking a look at the role that the supernatural and magical thinking had in the rise of Hitler to power in Germany. Movies like 2018's Overlord, games like Castle Wolfenstein, board games, stories, comics, legends... They all reiterate the profound importance of the occult in Nazi Germany. But how important was this kind of thinking? To find out, we interview author Eric Kurlander, whose book Hitler's Monsters explores this question in great depth. I've included a list of terms with linked definitions in the show notes because we'll be discussing a lot of esoteric topics here, which were once widely known but which have become obscure since the end of World War II. These often absurd theories, while unscientific, often held high levels of official support within Hitler's inner circle. For the fullest explanation and context, I'd recommend getting Kurlander's book, which does go into great detail. A link to that will also be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. In 
If you're in the Austin, Texas area, I'll be attending a conference called Of Gods and Monsters at Texas State University this weekend, the 4th through the 7th in San Marcos. But I'm going to try to make a small Monster Talk meetup happen. I'll post the details in the Facebook group, but the plan is to go to the Museum of the Weird probably on Thursday night and hang out for a bit on 6th Street after that. Again, this kind of depends on how travel goes, but check the Monster Talk Facebook page for the most up-to-date details. Hopefully we can make that work, and I'd love to say hello. Monster Talk. Today we're welcoming Eric Kurlander to Monster Talk. Uh, Eric, we don't actually have a bio for you. I'm a historian of modern Europe, and Germany is my um, area of research expertise. I've written a number of books on German liberalism and nationalism, the Third Reich, um, one called uh, Living with Hitler about liberalism in the Third Reich. And my most recent book is on uh, the supernatural in the Third Reich, Hitler's Monsters. And that's the book uh, we're talking about today. Yeah. I teach at Stetson University in Florida. Um, and I got my PhD from Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I've heard of that. So for, for this book, Hitler's Monsters, can you set the scene for this time frame a little bit and tell us a bit about the state of the world in Germany at this time? Right. So the time frame for the book is the field, kind of the period I work in more generally and have for 20 years, which is the late 19th century through the middle of the 20th century. So what we call uh, Wilhelmine Germany, because Kaiser Wilhelm was in charge, uh, Weimar Germany, and then the Third Reich, including the Second World War and the Holocaust. That's that's basically the time frame, though I, I go backward a little further in the 19th century to give some context. And um, I do reflect on the period after the Second World War a little bit in the epilogue, but not very much. I'd like to, I think, before we get in too far, ask for a couple of or a few definitions. Um, there was a lot of um, movements going on before, I guess, after World War One and, and prior or maybe even the late uh, 19th century uh, that were brought to bear on your narrative of how these sort of fringe beliefs influenced the rise of the Nazis. And I didn't know a lot of them. I, I was very unfamiliar with them. So could we talk a little bit about, well, in, in the first one, I, I did know, but when we talk about Aryans, what, what are we really talking about there? So great question. And then it fits into your first question about periodization. Um, by the late 19th century, you had rapid industrialization, urbanization, and the rise of modern science, right? So lots of, of scientists and well-educated people could now explain the world in ways they couldn't 100 years earlier. And what you see while that's happening is a lot of people start to find that kind of um, disturbing, challenging, right? People who, who want to have faith in something, a higher power, or, in, or, or believe you know, that it's important to have a balance between science and the soul are, are starting to say, you know, we've become too materialistic and too scientific and, and too kind of focused on, on industry and technology, what Max Weber calls the, the disenchantment of the world. So the three things I look at in the book, and I start in the 19th century, are the rise of occultism, a modern form of occultism, that not the same thing as what we saw in, you know, in the medieval era with Paracelsus. The rise of what I call border science, it's a, a mix of modern science and occult and kind of faith-based beliefs, and we'll talk more about that. And then alternative and new age religions, and that's where the Arianism often comes in. 
this idea that there are Indo-Aryan religions and Indo-Aryan spiritual beliefs that go back to you know northern India and Central Asia that defines Nordic religion and Japanese religion and Hinduism and Buddhism, but doesn't really have a lot in common with Judeo-Christianity. Um, and so there's a, a kind of resuscitation of that kind of interest in alternative religion in the West, but especially for my book in Germany and Austria. So those are the three prongs that I kind of introduce in the late 19th century and then follow through after World War I. And I think what I'll do for safety or like for expediency will be uh, to try to look up some of these terms that I think may be new to listeners and put them in the show notes. But the one other one that kept coming up again and again that I hadn't really heard much about was Ariosophy. Could, could you introduce that as well? Right. So if we take the, the three different kind of clusters of beliefs, the occult, the border science and the alternative religion, Ariosophy is one of the three kind of occult doctrines I look at. Um, it comes out of theosophy, which it sounds like you have heard of, Madame Blavatsky, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, this idea that there are root races that, you know, went through different stages of evolution. So it kind of mix, it mixes kind of Indian and Middle Eastern religion with Darwinism. And there's a belief that Atlantis was the peak of ancient civilization and then collapsed in a flood or possibly an ice age. So that's theosophy. And what the Ariosophists do, almost exclusively in Austria and Germany, is take those ideas and say, yeah, there were root races, but the best one, the Arians, which the theosophists talk about a little bit, they're the ones that should be running all the great civilizations and used to dominate the world. But because of race, race mixing and a loss of kind of spiritual and religious purity, and, you know, no one uses Nordic runes anymore, and the swastika and other Indo-Aryan symbols have gotten lost somehow. And if we could just resuscitate all that spiritual and racial purity, we would have a healthier Germany and Austria. So the Ariosophists are kind of an occult group that combines, like most occult doctrines, science and religion, right? And they are riffing off of theosophy, but in a much more racial, political way. The other branch is anthroposophy, which is also very Austrian. Rudolf Steiner is an Austrian. And it's kind of in between. It's not as racist as the Ariosophists, but it's a little more focused on Europe and Germany and Austria and kind of making those cultures great again than it is global, like the Theosophists are. They're really you know, not that focused on the racism or the European aspects of it. Thanks. Making Germany great again. Exactly. <laughs> or Austria is the case. Or, or right. the Germanic or Aryan race, right? The stories of Germany for these groups, you know, how far the empire is going to be is, is very much, it's very malleable, as it would be mm-hmm. for the Nazis. They're not traditional nationalists. Right. So they talk about Germany, but they also talk about Germanic people and Aryan people and Nordic people. And sometimes those lines get very fuzzy. So at this time uh, of... Um various colonies and power of of uh, England and Spain and, and the French. Um, where was Germany in, in as far as colonization was concerned? Did they have many, many colonies? Were they very powerful? Um, what was their their kind of plan at this point, I guess, um, for, for colonization? That's a great question, and it, it ties into, like so many things, into the main arguments of the book. So many of these anthroposophists and ariosophists 
were very pro-colonial and thought Germany didn't have enough colonies because Germany didn't really start because it didn't become a country until the 1870s and Austria was kind of excluded and Austria had to deal with its own colonial stuff in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. So Germany proper didn't really get colonies in Africa and Asia till the 1880s. And when people like in Britain and France they say, why can't we have more colonies? They kept coming into conflict with, you know, Britain, France, Portugal that already controlled so much. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of talk in Imperial Germany, especially the later decades, about how do we get more colonies, what they called Weltpolitik, to have to have colonies all over the world just like the Kaiser's grandmother, Victoria, because he was the grandson of, of uh, Queen Victoria, he said yeah. that the sun never sets in the British Empire. So Kaiser Wilhelm wanted the same thing. And you see a lot of these occultists and border scientists and paganists who are into folkish Aryan religion really do want to expand Germany. Mm-hmm. And they don't just want to do it for economic reasons, but for kind of values-based reasons, to spread the race back all all over the world. The Aryan race needs to spread out again. It will in some ways bring civilization to Africa and Asia, but also these ideas of Ariosophy, Anthroposophy, Theosophy. So Wilhelm Huberschleiden, who's one of the founders of um, Theosophy in Austria, is also very much an imperialist (laughs) who says that Germany has a global mission that's linked to it being part of this great Indo-Aryan civilization that's that's declined and and through colonial policy you could spread german values again Mm -hmm. racial spiritual strength and and culture so the desire for being a great colonial power is mixed up for a lot of these thinkers with racial and spiritual purity and the desire to resuscitate that kind of global empire again right didn't they talk about having a day in the sun or something a danish sun no, their day in the sun. Their day in the sun. And another important thing, once they lose all these colonies after the World Danish War, sorry, there's a lot of Denmark stuff. They already talked about Eastern Europe before World War One, but then during the war, because they invade Eastern Europe, and after the war, that becomes kind of the colonial space to work out their kind of spatial, racial fantasies influenced by folkish religion and and esotericism. So it, it was more global before, and then it becomes more Eastern European after. But they never lose the global elements. It just kind of shifts. Well, first of all, let me just say I loved your book. I, I really did, although it, I found it oh, very frightening cool. in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that was your goal to scare me, but it did. Okay. <laughs> just just you. <laughs> what I find interesting here from a wordplay perspective is this rise of German imperialism, yet the rejection of imperial things like rational science. Um, the whole role of the paranormal and spiritual within German culture after World War One, but before the rise of the Nazis, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, the way that that this sort of uh, embracing of magical thinking seemed to sort of grip the culture. Well, you know, like I said before, it's happening everywhere in the West in direct or relation with the rise of modern science and the decline of traditional religion. So, as people are no longer as excited about what they see as kind of antiquated ideas of, you know, Catholic or Lutheran liturgy, right? And as they're recognized in the world can be explained through science and scientific method and technology, many people are kind of caught between two stools, as they say in Germany. They don't want to go back to traditional religion. That doesn't really help them understand the modern world. But 
they find science and technology very daunting. They want simpler explanations or doctrines that help them make sense of their material and spiritual reality. So they start turning to these occult ideas, to scientific astrology, to pendulum dowsing, spiritualism, clairvoyance, new age religions, Kabbalah, um, all the kind of stuff, by the way, that happens at other moments of kind of technological, social crisis and rapid change. So it's not like this is the first time this has ever happened in history. It also happened right after the Enlightenment with the Romantic era. There was a rejection of rationality and you know, you look at the British and German romantics who were into vampires and werewolves. Once you have a period of rapid industrial technological change, you often have a reaction that seeks to kind of return to, to you know, a more spiritual or metaphysical or organic way of viewing the world. So um, the Germans and Austrians weren't unique in that. That's going on in America. William James is conducting clairvoyant experiments, one of the greatest psychologists, founders of modern psychology. But there are differences, and I focus a lot on what those differences are and why I think they helped facilitate eventually Nazism. So, but this, I'm not inventing anything new here. I mean, this is going on throughout the 1880s and 90s up through World War One. Alastair Crowley in Britain, I mean, everyone knows about it. And then you see the same thing happening again at the kind of end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, after all this period of Cold War and, and socioeconomic, you know, uh, battles over the welfare state and communism versus capitalism. You've got David Bowie and new age people running around California who are fascinated by swastikas and Satanism and, and witches and new age practices, Charlie Manson. Th this is a pattern we see in the West over the last 200 years. I don't want to make it about Germany and Austria per se. That's one reason it's so scary though, because when that starts to become a socio-political answer to complex problems and not just what you do for fun at home in your drawing room. You have a, you know, a seance or play with the Ouija board or read Harry Potter, but you're actually believing this stuff. That's when it becomes dangerous to the functioning of a modern liberal democracy. So the patterns are more global, so to speak, but the way they manifest are more particular and they start to have particularities, I argue, in that period before World War One. Yeah, you actually uh, made a very good I, I didn't mean to imply this was only happening in Germany. In fact, we've covered on previous episodes the rise of theosophy, the rise of Western esotericism. And I was thinking in terms of things like, or I kept thinking while reading, but I haven't had a chance to see if, if there's anything there. But the witch cult in Western Europe by Murray, um, it seemed like as she was seeking this uh, hidden cult in, in, in England um, and in that area, uh, the, the Germans were also looking for a lost religion as well. Um, or it seemed like that they were reaching back to the Eddas and other uh, mythopic thinking. I don't know. Is that a real word? I think it is. <laughs> well, I think I think. We, but yeah, we can take any of these cases, whether it's vampires, werewolves, witchcraft, and I could show how it was common. It was pan-European in some ways. And then I could talk about, if you wanted to work that way, hmm. what was specific in the Austro-German context. So, for example, with witchcraft, because that's part of New Age and Wiccan kind of return to nature thinking, sure, lots of people are interested in that again in the late 19th century. And there's books on witchcraft. You can go to a New Age bookstore in Berlin or Munich or London and find them. The difference I find is instead of being a kind of 
pansexual, almost universalist, return to nature kind of religious experience, which some people almost do tongue in cheek. In Germany, there seems to be among right-wing racist thinkers the idea that what the West considers witchcraft or what the Christian church called witchcraft was really a kind of ur-Germanic Aryan religion. Mm. And they just called it witchcraft and Satanism and Luciferianism to have an excuse to wipe out Germanic culture and paganism. Mm -hmm. So these people create this idea that that's what authentic German religion is. It's not Christian. That's the first step. And they link it to, you know, in some ways, the Holy Grail and the Cathars. And then in the Third Reich, you've got Nazis saying, see, they systematically, the Jews behind the Catholic Church wanted to wipe out our culture and race by calling us witches. So they take a a kind of pan-European revival of Wiccanism or witchcraft or what have you, that in some ways is very apolitical and just a rejection of traditional religion, maybe a little iconoclastic, and often very feminine in the way it's oriented. There's a lot of women. It's a way of kind of restoring women's power in some ways. And they make it into this justification for attacking the Catholic Church and killing Jews. So the same ideas get metastasized in a right-wing focused context. So we could do we could go through that with a lot of things. Same ideas kind of percolating doesn't necessitate fascism but gets used in that way in the context of Austrian German right-wing circles. Does that make sense? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And I wanted to ask you, uh, in Austria and, and Germany at the time, um, so after World War I, uh, the interest in the paranormal and supernatural and the occult, how much of that do you think was a, a product of the political climate and all of the things that were going on after the, the losses of World War I and then the Great Depression, all the things that were, were going on? Uh, I know in countries like the United States or in Australia, when there's a recession, a lot of people turn to things like psychics to try and you know find out what they should do regarding their career and, and money, things like that. Um, so how much do you think of, of this political climate was really affecting people's interest in the paranormal and inciting it? Right. So great question. And the way I look at it in the book is you've got two things going on, right? You've got the epistemology behind a cult or pagan religious or border scientific thinking, the idea that the real answers are not through the conventional materialist scientific method or liberalism or kind of complex economic and social analysis. It's some other doctrine or lost way of thinking or viewing the world. That kind of it defines those ideas everywhere. And as you say, when people are at a loss, they often resort to those ways of viewing the modern world as a substitute for the complexities of reality. Like it's really about tariffs and the Fed and, you know, that's just too much for them. But then you've got the content of those doctrines, which varies quite a bit. What I call the supernatural imaginary has different content in different countries. It could be more or less Christian, more or less racist more or less influenced by ideas of Atlantis in the West or in Asia would have different kinds. And so what you see happening with the war is the socioeconomic psychological crisis of that 
One pushes more people, as you see everywhere, as you point out, to become, I guess, more gullible or more um, open to alternative ways of knowing and thinking, as we see with them. You know, Berlin had a record number of, of tarot card readers and clairvoyants, and people are spending lots of money going to them, right? Especially mm-hmm. after the Great Depression, but even right after World War I. But then because of the pre-war content of these doctrines that we just talked about, they, many of them had a kind of racist, Nordic, Indo-Aryan, um, imperialist, right, mm-hmm. uh, element to them, which is then doubly dangerous because not only are they not seeking answers in real things that can provide real solutions, mm-hmm. when they're embracing these doctrines and ideas, it often reinforces, and here's where we get to the politics, Ideas about politics that tend to be what we would call right-wing, fascist, alt-right, racist. So it's, it's, it has a double effect. It's not just it, that it provides a bridge to less maybe rational or material or empirical thinking. The content, which extends back to the 1880s and 90s, which tends to be more racialized, more focused on Nordic ideas of Atlantis, the, the Thule instead of Atlantis, right? They even have their own Nordic terms for these things. That becomes inscribed in this supernatural thinking. And right. that together, I think, opens the door to make to supporting people like Hitler. Right. You have to both suspend disbelief about rational explanations, which usually helps right wing politics, no matter what the content. And then yes. because the doctrines that provided a bridge to that way of thinking were so immersed in racial and imperial ideas and ideas of Indo-Aryan pu- racial purity and spiritual purity. When you start hearing someone like Hitler talk, who is at least riffing off those ideas, even if he doesn't embrace all of them directly, you say, hey, this is a person for me. So I think it, you had to have both those things happen as a result sure. of the war. So much of the Nazi belief system was built off what was essentially faith, which and the faith was more important than empirical evidence. You had to believe in what Hitler said. You had to believe in, in what the propaganda said. But there, there seemed to be a lot of effort going on to get archaeological and textual support for the different kinds of fringe Nazi beliefs. So why was it so important to back up these ideas with evidence when evidence seemed to have so little value otherwise? Well, because it's not an absence. So that's exactly what modern occultism or border science is. The best equivalent in our culture would be something like um, intelligent design, Right. Or the few climate change deniers who find like fake evidence. In the modern world, most people don't react well, at least in the West, to purely faith-based ideas. They want it based in some veneer of science, something they heard about in biology class or chemistry, right? That's what we see in the late 19th century. These border scientists and these scientific occultists would claim that they were operating scientifically. They just found a way to unite spirituality and the material world. They, they could predict things that, that regular scientists couldn't, not because it was they were talking to God, because they found hidden forces, or they actually could talk to spirits, which you could empirically test. The Nazis, for all their kind of persecution of some occult groups, they really straddle science and faith in that way that the occultists and scientific and the border scientists do. They want to, to, to show that they're experts, that they have scientists working on their ideas, that you really can rank all races in different systematic ways and, and reorganize the world. 
no mainstream scientists by the 30s and 40s, very few, would have taken any of those doctrines that the Nazis were pushing, including many German scientists, right? And mm -hmm. said, that's empirically accurate. But the reason it was so attractive to average middle-class, at least semi-educated voters and, and citizens is it had that veneer of science, right? Right, mm -hmm. and technology. And Germany was at the center of science. So people wanted to see that veneer. They wanted you know, recourse to Darwin, biology, root races. You know, you just need enough of it to get the person to say, hey, they know what they're talking about. Then they'll suspend disbelief. So it's, it's less than, it's not like a, a, a nugget of fact that you build a pearl around. It's more like uh, uh, the, the, the fact that it becomes like a Christmas tree hanger, an ornament hanger, and then the, the ornament's completely built out of magic, but you just hang it on this little nugget. Is that? Those are great. I would say both those analogies hold. So okay. sometimes they, they'd find a legit, you know, this spear of Koval that they found, I talk about in the book. And in the middle of the war in the Holocaust, you've got Himmler and Rosenberg and some of the leading archaeologists and historians working for the SS saying, this is great that we found it. You know, it shows X, Y, and Z. It really was an ancient spear that probably belonged to Germanic groups, not Polish or Ukrainian groups, even though that's where they found it. But instead of just saying, okay, you know, we know the Teutonic Knights made it so far and other Germanic, you know, migrations and leaving it at that, recognizing that it was an ethnically mixed area and that these people weren't Germans in the modern sense, they build up this whole because they've already got all these ideas of root races and Germanic civilization and into you know, this whole kind of story around it about why that justifies them reoccupying and resettling the Ukraine and Poland and kicking out all the Slavs. That is totally not based in any empirical 1940s, you know, acceptable in the 40s archaeological method. And the scientists who work for them, you get kind of two kinds of scientists that work for Himmler and and the Nazis, the ones who know better but want funding, so they just kind of twist their findings to, to make everyone happy. And then after the war, they turn out to be very good scientists and often get rehabilitated. And then the kind of true faith-based border scientists who lead with ideology and just you know throw in evidence to make themselves look like they know what they're talking about. The Nazis are good at getting both groups. There's a lot of reputable anthropologists, historians biologists who work for the regime and, you know, privately might quibble over the methods, but say, hey, we're getting funding. We're a great empire again, you know, and they <laughs> twist their findings to fit what Himmler wants. And then there's those people who just buy, you know, racial ideology, Indo-Aryan um, spirituality wholesale. And then they take the facts to fit or the th or make up theories to fit their ideology. And it's interesting to see in the archives and the sources when those two different groups have to interact or work together, there are often subtle like conflicts about method or something where one will say, this person really doesn't know what they're doing. Like they just destroyed this, this site. They're not real archaeologists. And yet that person in another letter is like, I think I found evidence that, you know, um, Germanic races were, you know, worshipped at these stones. I think that's true. And you know, after the war, they say, well, we're not sure about that. So, you know, we just need to be skeptical of all of it, but recognize it's a spectrum and that there are really good scientists and social scientists working for the Third Reich, and there are really bad ones. They're not all pseudoscientists or border scientists.
So I think we'd like to start getting into talking about the Nazi paranormal programs. And I guess to begin with, uh, when it comes to the Nazis' interest in the paranormal, what were their objectives? Was it to win the war at that point or was it really to advance their theories about uh, folk history and their ideologies or a bit of both other other things that they were trying to achieve? Yeah, so it's it's most, I think it influences everything, right? The argument of the book is that there's some influence of the supernatural thinking, even on military decision-making and miracle weapons. But it had its greatest impact in cultural and intellectual terms. Whether you look at school curricula or debates the Nazis are having about race and space, they clearly are taking folklore and occult, folkish, esoteric ideas that are percolating before we're one and, and using those to justify their view, views of the world, their propaganda, their, their imperial fantasies about the East. When it comes to actual policy, in some cases, they reject that kind of thinking. And in other cases, they accept it. So, for example, um, Himmler takes, has pendulum dowsers, diviners, who he sends out in the field with the Waffen-SS to find water and precious metals and various things. Because he really believes that they're as good or better as, you know, contemporary radiologists are, which is why the scientific term for pendulum dowsing is radiesthesia. It's a way of giving it legitimacy, right? They're, these are scientific radiesthesiologists. It's really diviners. Um, world ice theory. They set up a whole in, meteorolo meteorological institute within the Ananerba, which is the SS Research Institute, the goal of which is to show that this fantastical theory that, that was, was devised in a fever dream by an Austrian kind of amateur science writer, this guy named Horbiger, is the best way to understand all geology, meteorology, and possibly physics and chemistry and all these other fields. And when mainstream scientists in Germany, some of whom even like the Nazis, are like, We're, we don't see the evidence for any of this, Himmler and a lot of these other Nazi scientists get angry, and they, they create something called the Piermonter Protocol 36, saying, if you don't practice world ice theory the way we see it, you can't get funding and you can't get published in journals mm -hmm. affiliated with us. So they take that seriously. Himmler's doing studies that, you know, maybe German soldiers are more immune to cold than Russian soldiers because of their ancient, you know, racial origins in, a, in an era of frost giants and, and Nordic gods. I, I'm not making this up. Um, so, so that's a, a practical outcome of that. They use astrologers and diviners to try to find uh, enemy battleships and destroyers. The British have developed radar and sonar, and the and the the German Navy isn't quite sure how they're finding their U-boats. And so, a member of the German Navy, who's clearly immersed in this stuff, I think his name is Roderer, says, "Hey, you know, I think they're using divining rods." <laughs> that's how they're doing it. So they set up a pendulum institute and, and we need to be careful. This isn't even a Nazi undertaking. Uh -huh. So most of what I'm talking about in the book are people who are high ranking Nazis recognize that many Germans who aren't Nazi find this stuff to be crazy. You know, only a third of Germans ever voted for the Nazis. Two thirds of Germans, socialists, liberals, what like these guys, they're just, they're way too far out there. So I'm focusing on Nazis, and, and then once they're in power, they kind of dictate things. But even non-Nazis sometimes, 
quite these members of the Navy are like, maybe it's pendulum dousing. So they set up an institute. They get Himmler, who has no problem doing this, to release a bunch of the astrologers and pendulum dousers he had previously arrested. And they put them to work. And of course, they don't find anything and it doesn't work. And they end up losing the Battle of the Atlantic. Um, at the same time that they've got the Enigma machine, which is one of the most sophisticated uh, codes ever ever you know, devised. So it's not like the Germans abandoned science and technology. It's like two parallel cultures, as I say. This, this highly modern technological mainstream scientific culture that mixes and melds with a faith-based border scientific occult-infused culture. And obviously that doesn't help them, right? When they have to have those battles over resources or, or theory, rather than just going focusing on the science, I, it undermines them as it did here. Or they, they claim that they Himmler sets up, or actually Schellenberg, the head of the security service, sets up a pendulum and an astrology um, institute in 43, using many of these same people to find Mussolini. And, you know, a lot of the evidence, including some of the SS leaders after the war said, we basically found him through breaking codes and conventional intelligence methods. But at the time, many people, including Himmler, believed it was the pendulum dousers. So, and he had his own personal astrologer to give him advice. So, you know, Rudolf Hess opened a homeopathic institute as an alternative to materialist mainstream medicine, which he thought was unhealthy. And he had weird magnets above and below his bed to protect him from death rays. Hitler hired a dowser to patrol the Reich Chancellery for cancer-causing hidden energies. We could go down the list. So does it impact every aspect of Nazi policy? Absolutely not. It's a modern industrial state. There are many brilliant scientists and politicians who don't embrace this stuff. But it, it impacts far more, I argue, than any other Western industrialized state at that time. You just don't see this in Churchill's England or Roosevelt's <laughs> United States or Leon Bloom's France. And that's what makes it both interesting and scary. Yeah, I just love that pendulum inst institute. That, that made me laugh. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think Blake's probably got some questions about astrology and ast to, to ask of you. But I just wanted to set the scene a, a little bit more. Um, so we've been talking about Himmler and referring to some of his projects and Hess as well. Um, was this something that was really governed by Himmler? Did, did these uh, plans and ideas and the goals, did they come from Hitler at all? Or were they really pet projects of Himmler in particular? Himmler is the most powerful Nazi to embrace all three aspects of the supernatural imaginary I described. He, he's interested in the occultism. He's interested in the border science. He's interested in the pagan alternative religion. Not every Nazi is equally invested in all three. Of the highest-ranking Nazis, Himmler, Hitler, Goebbels, Hess, Goering, you know, uh, Himmler is the one who's most invested and has the most money and kind of energy for it. Hess is probably similar, but Hess didn't have the same influence for as long, wasn't maybe as systematic in getting resources or deploying resources. But, of course, he consults astrologers, too. He he believes in anthroposophy to some extent. Um, Goering probably would be, the, of the five I named, five or six, probably the least interested, um, though he, he, he supports these kind of odd experiments of creating prehistoric animals based on, you know, border scientific ideas about evolution and 
and racial racial breeding that he can go hunt in Poland. Um, his cousin, uh, who's a well-known psychologist, works with the most famous parapsychologist in Germany, Hans Bender. So even Goering's tied to it. But he, if if we were just talking about Goering, this wouldn't be that interesting a story. But when you bring in Himmler and Hess, and then <laughs> Goebbels, who's hiring Nostradamus specialists to develop propaganda based on astrology, thinking first it's going to influence the allies, who frankly, there's no real evidence that that kind of propaganda influenced them, and then continues it recognizing that Germans respond very well to Nostradamus propaganda and who's supposedly going to invade what country when. I mean, that's fascinating in and of itself. And then you've got Hitler, who is very eclectic with everything, right? He, he wasn't <laughs> formally educated. He's just a smart person who reads a lot. So on the one hand, he'll make fun of, you know, wandering scholars and bearskins, these early right-wing thinkers that kind of helped create the Nazi party, but really want to talk about pendulum dousing and runes all the time, says that's not how you create a modern party. And then he asks for a pendulum dowser to come in. Or he starts talking about the swastika as a symbol of the Aryan sun god and all these things, which clearly show he's been reading some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Or he says world ice theory is the best way to explain the world and agrees with Himmler that they should give an honorary degree to one of the people who invented world ice theory. So Hitler kind of picks and chooses. Yeah, a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. The modern scientific thinker. At other times, he's clearly operating in a realm of faith and border science. Right. Um, so I, I just went through a few of them. You could go down the line. Oh, no, you, the, the book's chock full of them. Yeah. Let's talk about Hitler for just a minute. It would be weird to talk about a Nazi book and not talk about Hitler. But a couple of things come up a lot uh, when people talk about the Nazis. One is the idea that Hitler might have been an atheist. But uh, I didn't see much evidence of that in your book. And what I saw instead was that he wasn't exactly what you might think of as a conventional Christian either. What, how would you describe what his religious beliefs are to the best of our understanding based on what we know, you know, from primary sources? Right. So we got, let's start with the context of the kind of Nazi milieu that came out of this late 19th century mix of all these different ideas. Most Nazis would fall somewhere between what you might call German Christian wanting a Christianity that's denuded of its Jewish elements and Aryan Jesus who had blonde hair and all these weird border scientific and paganist theories about how you could do that. They'd, they'd range from that to full-on paganist, Luciferian, you know, there is an ancient Germanic Indo-Aryan religion. This is more like Himmler. And the Christians came in and tried to destroy it by calling us Satanists and witches. They most fall between there. Right. And there's different elements to it. Is it more Aero-Germanic, meaning they're focused on Atlantis, what they call the Thule and near Iceland and Nordic ideas and Nordic gods, Odin, Thor? Or do they have a broader sense that those gods are just Germanic parallels to the Indian gods and that it's all one Indo-Aryan religion based on the swastika and some pagan sun worship and you know, Tibetan, it's best preserved maybe in Tibet. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. 
We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. So you've got all these different ideas percolating. The Holy Grail was really a pagan symbol of this Indo-Aryan religion that the Christians didn't respect and tried to destroy. And that's why the Cathars tried to preserve it. There's a lot of elements there. Himmler is interested in a lot of this stuff, as is Hess, as is Walter Dare. And they don't want to even really differentiate between the Nordic and the Indo-Aryan. They kind of see them all fitting together. Hitler clearly finds a lot of this pragmatically useful. He doesn't see a world where people are going to give up faith. He's not a secularist ever. No matter what he criticized about any world religion, and mostly it's Judaism and Christianity, he sees religion as necessary. To what degree does he really believe in this stuff? Much less so, I would argue, than Himmler, Hess, Dare. Uh, Ohlendorf, one of the SS Einsatz group. There's a lot of Nazis who seem to believe in it and beat Rosenberg, the head of kind of Nazi religious thinking. They're all more invested in it than Hitler. But if you compare Hitler to Heydrich or Goering, he's far more religious in the way he views the world. And he, and he seems to embrace the idea that faith is necessary and needs to be kind of in, um, instilled in people than, than Heydrich, who's just anti kind of almost any kind of religion. So Hitler's somewhere like in everything in between. He's not a conventional Christian. I just don't see how anyone could argue that. He's probably not even a German Christian. He doesn't seem, he doesn't talk about Jesus as his great figure very often. He'll occasionally talk about Christians who were persecuted by Jews, or I'll say, you know, Christianity was good until Paul took over, who was a Jew, unlike Jesus, right? So he's, he's somehow gotten bits and pieces of this weird Aryanized Christianity. But um, most of all, I'd say he thinks there are, there are hidden forces, there's, there's forces of divine providence, and that probably the best way to articulate or reach those kinds of spirituality are through Germanic and Indo-Aryan religions. He talks all the time about how Shinto is great, Hinduism and Buddhism are cool, Islam has a lot of great elements and is a religion of heroism. But Christianity, at least insofar as it relies on Judaism, is corrupt, anti-Aryan. It's all about the afterlife, which is why no one wants to be a warrior and sacrifice themselves for the folk. And that is a weak religion, and we'd be better off if our people were not so invested in it. So he's very eclectic. 
I wouldn't say he's a devout follower of anything, but he's clearly parroting a lot of the ideas of these other Nazis and these late 19th century thinkers in a very unsystematic way. Does that help? I'd say yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think we wanted to follow up to that too and to uh, ask about magic, uh, that that seemed to be important to Hitler as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the evidence that we have that Hitler might have dabbled with magical theory too? Right. So magic in this kind of new occult universe, you know, the, it parallels this idea of demonic power, not demon like a, a devil. You probably know all this because of your show. But de- demonic like kind of forces and the kind of Jungian psychological powers of manipulation. And, you know, magic is is possibly a real force of charisma or magnetic personality. Um, now, the more occult oriented think there really are magics that can be harnessed. But what's very clear is that Hitler thought the field of modern psychology was interesting. He read Le Bon's um, theory of crowds and crowd manipulation. And he also seemingly read, given the annotations, a book by a parapsychologist called Magic. And the stuff he underlined, some of it was like, you know, how Luciferian ideas are, are good and pre-Christian paganism what is really the most authentic religion. But a lot of it's about manipulating people by using the power of your mind and, you know, magnetic personality and charisma and, you know, those kinds of things. So what we have is that Hitler thought magic, whatever he he meant by it, mm-hmm. was an important phenomena, whether it was, in, you know, was a real empirical phenomena, you know, mind waves, magnetic powers, psychological energies or hidden occult stuff that he could use to manipulate people and get them on his side. And that great thinkers and charismatic leaders like Jesus and Buddha and um, Muhammad and Goebbels talks about this, seem to have the ability to manipulate people in this way by appealing to their emotions and faith more than reason. And Hitler thought it was really important he learned how to do that. So did he really think there is magic that can be manipulated or in clairvoyance? It's not completely clear to me he did, but he certainly thought enough people believed in those ideas in Germany and Austria that he could manipulate them by learning the gesticulations and the, and the, the tone and the kind of methods of these great charismatic religious leaders. And so that's kind of what I focus on, how, how his interpretation of kind of pop parapsychology merges well with the fascination that many people in Weimar have with spirituality, charismatic leaders, a desire to, to be moved emotionally more than rationally. And Hitler is able to tap into that, right? It's, he's the perfect, he's in the right time, in the right place to appeal to people on that level. You know, you talked about so many fringe beliefs, which were embraced by various, you know, top Nazis. Um, but, uh, but one thing you kept coming back to in the, in the text was how that within any of these groups, if any of them seemed like they were giving out messages that were considered sectarian, that they would be shut down, people be arrested. Uh, they would just, be, I, I don't want to say crushed, that might be too dramatic, but ultimately you, you, they really seemed concerned about people with similar ideas, but different agendas from existing. So how, how did the Nazis work about crushing 
all these ideologically similar groups? Because I had really not read much about that before. Right. Great question. So two things for context. One, we're talking about fascist regime. So it's not surprising that when they don't agree with someone, including people in their own party, they killed a bunch of Nazis in 1934 who they were worried about having a second revolution. So it's a fascist regime. They're not the most tolerant in the world. They don't always follow the letter of the law, right? They don't always believe in the rule of law. So the fact that certain occult groups, among all these other groups they went after, gypsies, Jehovah's Witnesses, to some degree Catholics, even the Pan-German League, which had a lot of Nazis in it. It was Pan-German, you know, and they banned them. Um, we shouldn't be surprised, number one. So people are like historians who are like, oh, look, they they persecuted the Freemasons and they, you know, banned the anthroposophic whatever fringe society in 37. Well, there it's a fascist uh, state that bans a lot of groups that they deem sectarian. But the thing beyond them being fascist and not a liberal regime is they were conflicted when they banned different groups because, as you suggest, they embraced a lot of these ideas. And they would often make arbitrary distinctions that go back to the broader occult milieu of the late 19th century. You know, there were occultists who said, I'm a scientist. That person's a popular or commercial occultist who just wants to manipulate old ladies. They don't really want to conduct experiments in a lab like I do, right? Because I have an engineering degree. Of course, the person probably didn't have the physics degree they actually required. Say, well, I have an engineering degree. I know how to work an x-ray machine so I can catch apparitions. These idiots are just manipulating you, saying you're talking to your aunt. That tension between the real occultists who are scientific and modern and you know the, the medieval popular commercial ones that for many right-wing occultists, they associated with Jews who are just trying to make a buck, that tension just reproduces itself in the Third Reich. So what some historians have interpreted as the Third Reich going after occultism, I interpret as them being very selective about what they consider sectarian. <laughs> if it's someone who doesn't map onto their ideology or isn't a member of the party, right, or who is seen to have an independent view and can manipulate people on their own, a rival to Hitler, like Rudolf Steiner. You know, a lot of these anthroposophists saw Steiner as a kind of charismatic guru, even though he's dead, who had the answer to everything. Agriculture, education, Waldorf schools, like just go read Steiner, like it's the Bible. So if you're Hitler or Himmler and you're saying, and these people are like, well, you know, we don't mind biodynamic agriculture. We'll work with you on that. But you'd be better off if you really embrace Steiner completely which some of these leaders are telling Hitler and Himmler or other Nazis, they're saying, well, wait, we have our own Bible. It's Mein Kampf. We have our own ideology. So when they start arresting some of these anthroposophists, it's not because they think they're nuts or they're not mm -hmm. scientific enough. A lot of it is they're a rival group that's mm -hmm. both faith-based and scientific. And that's kind of what the Nazis are. So... It's not that they reject occultism or border science completely or epistemologically. They make often arbitrary or selective decisions, which seem to be patterned on whether those groups are members of the Nazi party or, or super racist pro-Aryan and how useful or scientific they make themselves appear, which lends them legitimacy that the less scientific groups don't have. But even there, I don't see consistency because sometimes they let out of jail people who have never been scientific astrologers, right? 
So while Carl Kraft, who was a scientific astrologer, whatever that means, <laughs> does work for the regime, ends up getting kicked out by Goebbels because he refuses to betray his science and read Nostradamus against the grain. And Goebbels gets frustrated with him. And then he starts publishing all these books, making his own predictions. And eventually he gets arrested in 41. Wilhelm Wolf, who also gets arrested and is like a failed artist with no formal training in scientific astrology, Himmler has no problem putting him in charge of everything. So even that kind of arbitrary distinction between scientific and popular occultism, which the Nazis and a lot of scientific occultists before them try to draw, like we use scientific methods like real scientists, you don't. They then, when it's in their own interest or because it's all really faith-based in the end, they, they don't follow through on it. So it does help to be a scientific astrologer, a pendulum dowser, and have published books and articles and have a PhD or a master's. So yes, the Nazis do try to favor those groups when they conduct research, but they end up sometimes taking the failed artists or photographers who at 32 decided they were going to be an astrologer, and some of them have the most power and influence. So it's not consistent in how they make them. But yeah, many groups do get persecuted. We could talk about why and when. Well, you, you, I would say that it really surprised me that anybody working for the Nazis would do one of those rage quits. Ah, this is outrageous. I'm, <laughs> like after so many people have already been disappeared from you know public life, and, and that had to be common knowledge, uh, that they would feel like, oh, well, they're not doing my astrology the right way. I'm going to just resign. I just that I find that shocking. Well, it's not. So I said it's a fascist regime, but it's also not Stalinist Russia. If you're an Aryan German and you're not a leading communist, you didn't try to kill Hitler or plot to kill him. Right. So you're not Jewish. You're not a uh, Roma or Sinti. You're not disabled. They do they put fewer people in prison per capita than the United States does. Wow. So. So it's not a police state in the sense that Stalin is a police state, at least not until the war. So there were a lot of people who made fun of the Nazis or argued against certain doctrines, like with this world ice theory. I show in my chapter that all these scientists are writing in basically to Himmler, but to his scientists saying, why are you publishing this crap? We have people who can't do algebra. We're supposedly rearming and trying to train top engineers and military men. And you're saying world ice theory explains geography, geology, evolution. This is embarrassing. You know, sci you know, German science has a great reputation in the world. You're destroying it. Almost none of these people get any retribution. <laughs> Himmler gets frustrated and he tells his, his you know, world science, or ice what are you going to do about this? Write a counter article. You know, don't give those people any funding. Don't go to conferences where they are. But he doesn't just say, let's throw them in concentration camps. Because these are reputable Aryan scientists who are well known. You know, they don't. It's not as blatant as you know Stalinist Russia or Mao's China. They don't just suddenly decide with the Cultural Revolution, let's kill two million intellectuals in our own country. So there is a lot of space, and this is the scary thing about it, right? If more Germans earlier or even when later had protested or refused certain things, there would have been fewer horrible outcomes. It took democratic complicity or indifference for the Nazis to get away with a lot of what they did and a horrible war where most of it went on outside of Germany. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not that surprising. If you read Hitler's magicians controversy, you've got these magicians running around, some of whom are just blatantly occultist, despite 
finally in 37 rules against blatantly practicing occultism without approval by the regime. And these debunkers who were being hired to enlighten people start to get the Gestapo on their tail saying, you know what, we don't really like what you're doing because you're undermining the, you know, magicians uh, circle, the magic circle and, and they're magicians. You're giving, you know, the tricks of the trade away. You're undermining their act. They're like, well, yeah, because they're they're doing occultism and they're making people believe they can transport themselves and talk to dead people and, you know, and clairvoyance and and Hitler and the Gestapo intervene and say, yeah, we'd prefer you didn't do that. So after all of this supposedly anti-occultist stuff about how Germans need to be smart and educated, the few debunkers they have are told they can't do their performances anymore because it's undermining belief in magic or faith in magic. So it's really <laughs> contradictory and ambivalent. And Hitler's actually friends with the head of the, the Hitler of the magician circle, this guy named Helmut Schreiber. I have a picture of them together in my book. So there you go. Like. There's not a consistent policy against occultism or border science or paganism. They, re they rehabilitate a bunch of Freemasons as long as they join the party and, and don't meet in sectarian groups anymore. Mm -hmm. um, biodynamic agriculture, one of the main pillars of anthroposophy, one of the most popular occult doctrines in the last hundred years. You've probably heard of Steiner. I'm assuming that's he comes up because of Waldorf schools and stuff. Biodynamic agriculture says you've got to plant at certain times when the moon and stars and there's certain alignments. There's absolutely no proof it works. It's based on cosmobiology and astrology. And you've got almost every leading Nazi promoting it um, to the point where even Heydrich, who's arresting everybody, right? It's like, you know what? He writes Dare and later Himmler. You want to have biodynamic agriculture and farmers, that's fine. Just make sure they're not doing the other anthroposophy stuff, that they're not going to Waldorf schools and saying <laughs> Rudolf Steiner is their personal savior. If they're not doing that, I won't arrest them. But again, it shows you the ambivalence. It's not the, the supernatural thinking that bothers them. It's the potential rivalry with their own politics, their own ideas, their own organizations, or the state. At the end of the book, you were talking about Nazi wonder weapons, and uh, I've I've been watching with disdain the amount of uh, modern takes on history, archaeology, uh, the paranormal that seem to celebrate uh, the Nordic, uh, celebrate the idea that the Nazis had magic weapons, that Hitler still survived. Um, th th these ideas, to me. Uh, at first, they seem like harmless, you know, fantasy. But the more I look into it, the more I'm concerned that these are actually ideas of, of Nazis who didn't win the war but wanted to keep the ideas alive. Have you looked into any of that? Is, is it Are these ideas themselves sourced from Nazi ideas? Well, so you, there's a few different things in the cluster of, of uh, questions you just raised, which, is re which are really good. One, what I'm trying to show is the banality of supernatural thinking, not glorify it, not, you know, talk about torchlight processions at the Wevelsberg and yeah, they're evil, but isn't it kind of cool that they resuscitated Arthur? I'm trying to show without being disdainful of people who believe in the occult or new age, because many Americans do. I don't think every witch is a potential Nazi, how the, the absurdity of a lot of this and how it was usually unproductive, Right. 
it may have helped them get power among a small group of, of Germans and get away with certain things, but ultimately undermined a lot of what they did. And the miracle weapons is just a case study of that. They had all this great technology, but they often made decisions about whether to pursue nuclear power or not based on theories of Aryan physics or world ice theory versus Jewish physics. They put way too much money into weird projects because Hitler and Himmler loved rocket ships and science fiction that they had been reading in the 20s and 30s and didn't understand hidden forces that were actually real, like atomic physics terribly well, because it was Jewish. So they didn't invest a lot in it, right? Um, Speer, I mean, I use Speer because it's wonderful. He's the most important minister when it comes to World War II. He's the one in charge of the entire armaments industry. And he's telling everyone, Goebbels, Himmler, Balder von Schirach, head of the Hitler Youth, stop talking about miracle weapons. We've got the V1 and the V2. They're not working. We're killing a few thousand British, but they're invading you know, Europe already and Italy, and the British are just getting more galvanized. We might make a V3. I'm not sure what that's going to do. Why do you keep coming to me like and telling everyone? So I'm trying to show the way that this supernatural thinking, are, are in the end, it backfires. The Nazi werewolf organization never worked. <clears throat> it scared a lot of people, including Germans, that there were these partisans running around in the woods who would come out and like werewolves, you know, rip you apart and murder you if you didn't follow the regime or if you were an American or Russian. But the, the Russian partisans were far more effective than the German werewolf partisans. And what you get are weird stories of ethnic Germans fleeing West, claiming they're being attacked by vampires, oh. Serbian Slavic vampires who are allied with the communists. So it, it, it just, I'm trying to show how it all backfires. It undermines having a stable modern world democracy economy. And so long answer to your question, obviously, to the degree that people are resuscitating these ways of thinking, or fetishizing them or glorifying them, like, isn't it fascinating, right? Not that it, the, the nasty things it caused, but in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. Video games, movies. Yes, I think it facilitates in a, in a different form, right? Because the supernatural imaginary I talk about it's always got different content. So the alt-right today isn't is interested in the exact same things that the alt-right or fascists were in the 20s and 30s, but there are connections like Julius Evola. He was working with the SS on Holy Grail research. He was an Italian fascist who believed in the Holy Grail and wrote books on it. He's, he's there in, my, in the archives at 38, asking if he can go to the SS archives and look at their research on the Holy Grail. And then he pops up in the 50s and 60s as a leader of the new European right, <clears throat> having conferences on how, you know, culture and European race and all these things are really important. And then we see Steve Bannon talking about him. You know, the guy who's advising Trump, the most powerful person in the world. Abel Laws is a brilliant guy. So somehow... These people and their ideas are making a comeback. Different forms, you know, heavy metal music with discussions of the Wavelsberg, right? Did they know what the Wavelsberg actually was? Did they know the degree to which Himmler believed in Detmold and the Saxonhain versus some other holy site? Who knows? Who cares? The Wavelsberg is now resuscitated as a grail castle for the modern alt right. So, absolutely, it's. We've done a, a very poor job of differentiating fact from fiction 
of having a critical mindset on some of these things. And worst of all, I think, which I try not to do in the book, maybe to a fault, pretend this was a specific moment where absolute evil somehow got power, possessed these poor Germans, did these awful things. Not that it's a continuum and that these kinds of ideas are always percolating through societies, can be used for good or ill. That America, as I point out at the end of the book, according to Jung and Adorno and all these other Germans, was susceptible to the same ideas if they didn't double down on democracy and science and liberal uh, you know, views of the world and, be, and became too focused or hypnotized by the, the fascination with the occult and the, and the supernatural and faith that, that happened to the, to the Germans. So, yeah. So, yeah, this could happen to any Western democracy. I think it'd be very hard to have fascism or an alt-right movement that doesn't appeal to faith and emotion in some of these mm -hmm. same ways and mythology. It's definitely a lesson there for us today. Oh, yes. And, uh, Eric, I, I'm glad that you mentioned the search for the Holy Grail because I had wanted to discuss that on the show. So you, you touched upon that and you've talked about a number of interesting paranormal projects. Uh, I remember reading years ago about uh, some research they were doing into talking dogs, I think teaching German shepherds or trying to teach German shepherds how to talk. I'm just wondering if you could briefly touch on uh, one or two really strange programs that you came across in your research. Well, so our CIA was conducting strange experiments too. It's a matter of degree and kind. There is a fine line between border science that really isn't based on empirical reality and alternative science or homeopathy or what that actually has a basis in what could be tested and reproduced, but seems odd at first, right? People did think relativity was odd when it was first published. Mainstream physicists said this can't possibly be true. How could you know mass curve make, create a curvature in time and space and and all these things? So, um, I don't know. I, it's hard. I mean, there's so many bizarre things the Nazis were doing, but I wouldn't discuss some of these experiments. So, search for the Holy Grail as an archaeological, cultural, religious project. Fascinating. What did it mean at different times? Did one exist? What have you? When you start to think that that search will help you reconstruct an Indo-Aryan religion that can bind your people together with other Nordic races or possibly with, you know, India and Japan and other Indo-Aryan civilizations, then it becomes pretty bizarre and dangerous. Is it possible to get dogs to talk or, or, or apes? Sure. I don't see that as innately occultist or bizarre. If you think they can talk because... At some point in the past, like the anthroposophists and ariosophists and theosophists believe, some aliens visited Earth and implanted a seed in all primates, a third eye and, you know, alien technology and what have you. Well, that's problematic. So you got to look at the particular experiment. I, I don't think it's helpful to dismiss what appears to be at various times fringe science as innately dangerous or or silly, but once you've got those doctrines around for a while and they can't reproduce anything in different countries and different controlled circumstances and people still embrace them, we've got to recognize it's a faith-based project and probably dangerous if it ever becomes operationalized. And that's what didn't happen in Germany and Austria in that period. 
And with intelligent design and people who believe in Area 51 and and Muslim and Jewish world conspiracies in our country, um, I don't see that. I don't see us being terribly as one political science, but I don't see our guardrails right now, intellectual, political or otherwise, being particularly strong Mm -hmm. against that kind of thinking. And that scares me. Thanks, History Channel. What? (laughs) 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 Well, I I, I feel like we could talk for at least one more hour about all this stuff and still not have it covered. (laughs) Your book. So much to talk about. There is. Your book was great. Do you teach a class along this material as well, or is it just the book right now? Well, so in some ways, I taught two classes that that helped me work through the research and ideas. One um, here at my university, I co-taught it with a Slavoj Žižek uh, scholar who works on, on horror and the, and the, and the kind of supernatural. Um, he ended up, he, he was uh, Palestinian. He went back and got a job in Palestine. Um, but we taught that class together early on and it helped me think through a lot of these things. And then when I had a Fulbright in Germany, 2012, I taught the class in German. I could take all the sources from the archives I was finding and published sources and just give them to the students because they were all able to read German. Um, and so it, it helped me develop the project. Now what I do is I'll assign my book in classes on Germany, upper level classes or Nazi Germany, as one of the narratives that we follow. So I'll have works that focus on like economic history and the Depression or political and diplomatic history, and then mine is kind of cultural and intellectual, so they see different narratives explaining German history in this period. Um, but I don't teach a class that's just on the supernatural anymore. It's usually embedded into uh, my Germany War and Revolution class or my Nazi Germany class or something like that. I read the whole book. I loved it. But here's my burning question at the end. How much did the, this sort of magical supernatural worldview support the rise of the Nazis? Like, how important was it that they had this as part of their uh, foundational material in order to effectively take power? Or is it just a side effect or a, a just a, an interesting quality that they were this way, too? Because it seemed like you were implying that this sort of magical thinking – open people up to being more susceptible to an, a demagogue. Right. So it's a necessary but not sufficient factor. So I think what I try to argue is that without this kind of thinking and the content of this kind of thinking, like I said originally, it wasn't just the epistemology of being open to faith-based views of politics, society, race, and space, but the content of them. You couldn't have gotten – Nazism probably wouldn't have come to power – and it certainly wouldn't have had the content that it had in, Ger- in that German-Austrian context of the 30s and 40s. Um, but without the Great Depression and the First World War and the Versailles Treaty, none of it would have mattered because they never would have come to power, right? Mm-hmm. So it's we have these monocausal ways of talking about pop history, right? Without a bunch of things going – this is a highly industrialized, highly educated country, and as I said – even with all the horrible things that happened, and mind you, they'd never had a liberal democracy before 1918, despite all of it, only a third of the voters would vote for a party with this kind of alt-right, whatever you want to call it, supernatural race and and space-based view of the world. They never got more than 37% and kind of peaked at 33, it looks like, by the end of 32. If we look at Europe today, 
without a global financial crisis. The stock market's quadrupled. Unemployment's at four or five percent in the United States, eight or ten in most European countries, and alt-right parties like Le Pen's are getting forty percent. You could argue that Germany isn't some outlier. It's remarkable the Germans didn't vote a majority for the Nazis, and that's what's scary. Yeah, because along with this way of thinking, which we have prevalent now, you need socioeconomic crisis and political gridlock or dysfunction, and so. Yes, as a historian of this period, I prob- I think this is essential to understanding the, both the content and the ways of thinking, the, the ideological content and the ways of thinking that led to Nazism. But without World War I, a punitive peace treaty, and the Great Depression, which hurt Germany more than any other industrialized state for various reasons, you could not have ever had the Nazis come to power. Not in that period. It takes a lot. It used to take a lot should take a lot for a party that's that eclectic, that ideologically contradictory, that kind of violent and brutal and antithetical to the values we claim to hold, whether it's Judeo-Christian or Western liberal, to come to power. The fact that we've none of those bars have been reached in America or France or the Netherlands or Britain right now, and you're still getting Brexit votes and votes for Trump was the absolutely worst candidate, except maybe for Ben Carson. I mean, even if you're a conservative, you're looking at the 12 people who run in terms of their acumen, their experience, their understanding of, of law, the Constitution. And, and who keeps winning every primary democratically? Trump. And then sometimes Ted Cruz and Ben Carson. You couldn't have a better example of the breakdown of modern educated kind of citizenry. If you're a conservative right now, you're like, what is going on? If you're a liberal, obviously you're livid. This is happening everywhere. And we don't have a global financial crisis. We don't have 35% unemployment. We don't have a lost war and a punitive peace treaty. God forbid any of those things happen right now. Gosh, that does beg me to ask why. Why are we having this rise? If, if these pressures aren't there, is this something we'll never, never get rid of? Is this always going to be there? Well, so to, to switch more of a political science and sociology of religion <laughs> which is by the way way outside our bailiwick on monster talk <laughs> yeah yes. uh, well but since you probably get a lot of people who are fascinated by monsters and some might really believe in them maybe they'll reflect on on whether they also like i'm arguing believe in conspiracy theories about the government wall street jews and muslims and if they do and the need for a border wall they might start to reflect and say, why do I believe in both those things? And highly educated people on the coast find them both to be laughable. Is it because they're all a bunch of idiots who don't know what's really going on, or they're the ones pulling the strings? Or am I working in a world of a mix of faith and science that is reproducible only in my own head? I'm not saying your listeners belong to them. I'm just saying that's the problem. That's what we're seeing right now is You had this breakdown of a very stable, ironically, bipolar world in the late 80s, early 90s, right? The Cold War divided the world up between two Western secular doctrines of how everything works, socialism and liberal capitalism. And you had to fall on the line. We made the Mujahideen pick a side. We made the Latin American dictators pick a side. And they all had to listen to Moscow and Washington. And that provided a weird kind of stability. And in that world where you had two highly modern, technologically advanced regimes, 
there wasn't a lot of space for religious speculation, mythological fantasies. We needed scientists who understood what they were doing to build weapons and educate our population. We needed tax money to make sure we had healthy, strong citizens. There was a kind of consensus that ethno-religious fanaticism isn't helpful, right? When you could destroy each other like that. And then that world breaks down because one side collapses. You have a multipolar world. And immediately you see in the late 80s, as Gorbachev's coming in and the Cold War is dissipating, look at all the faith-based ethno-nationalist movements that pop up at the same time. Al-Qaeda, the Mujahideen in the 80s, the Iranian Revolution, and you know the... the um, Sunni and Shia fundamentalists all over the Middle East. In America, you've got the, uh, the evangelical movement and the and Falwell and all these people flooding into the public sphere for really one of the first times in many decades thinking religion and politics should mix again, almost bordering on theocracy. You look at what's going on in Central Asia with these ethno-religious groups in Russia kind of neo-Orthodox groups and conspiracy theorists, all these people, right, who who don't like a materialist bipolar world, what Huntington calls the clash of civilizations. So I think we're in that world now. It's the one that explains 9-11 and all these wars in the Middle East. It's what explains the divide in our own country. Now, in the past, when we've been in world in a world like that, it usually cycles. Then you get people who are kind of tired of that kind of View of the world, they've they've had a generation to to revisit their spirituality, to go back to church in larger numbers, to find Jesus, and they once again start to move back into that kind of Cartesian, what I would call Cartesian uh, compromise, right? That I've got my faith over here, and I've got the real world over here, and I'll go to faith when I need it, and I'll do real world stuff when I need it. That was the famous Cartesian dualism, right? That he worked out scientific revolution. But those things are mixing again. And that's always dangerous politically and socially, especially if there's a crisis that helps justify these kinds of ideas. So that's what I would say is that there are good socioeconomic geopolitical reasons for the resuscitation of religion and faith and ethno-religious ideas and aliens and Area 51. That's kind of something that popped out of the late 80s with the decline of the Cold War. It led to bloody, murderous, hundreds of thousands of people getting killed in, in the Balkans. Um, it's led to this huge values divide in the United States and, and Central Asia and other places where you've got kind of urban, relatively secular, educated people and relatively rural, small town people who have more faith-based views of the world. And it doesn't have to metastasize into fascism because we've gone through these periods. There's been religious renaissances lots of times, right? Um, sometimes it helps promote democracy. In the 19th century, a lot of nonconformist Christian groups believed, you know, William Jennings Bryan and not getting crucified on, you know, cross of gold on, in, in more popular politics. And some of them were anti-slavery. So religion or faith-based Movements and thinking doesn't always produce authoritarianism, theocracy, um, crusades, wars, fascism. But it can if you don't have enough people protecting the guardrails 
of empirical thinking, nuance, multiculturalism, liberal individualism, the state as a kind of arbiter that you believe should be, you know, is functional, not some conspiracy of elites that's out to get you. I mean, that's when things become dangerous. And we're definitely at a point where way too many Americans think in those terms, mostly on the right, but not only on the right. I have a political science colleague who shows that there are left-wing people who like to connect the dots in bizarre ways that border on conspiracy or conspiratorial. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, yeah. We see a lot of that. Well, thank you for that very thoughtful answer. And it I know was. We probably. Lots to think about. <laughs> exactly. But uh, yeah, we've, we've spoken about a lot of monsters today, Eric. Uh, we've just got one final question for you that we like to ask all of our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster? What's my favorite monster? Yeah. Um, it's it's definitely the the Victorian era vampire. Oh. The, the tragic kind of more humanized vampire of the last 150 years. If I think about the literature that I like to read, the movies I like to watch, of course, I don't believe in vampires. That's my favorite monster. And then second, probably the werewolf. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> awesome. So so you're not a fan of the... Uh, well, although I... Oh, I should have brought this up. You did make a really interesting point that in the movie um, Nosferatu, that the vampire... Uh, is seen to have a Jewish aspect, which I'd never really considered before. Yeah, it's it's so it's a perfect example or place that instead of reproducing the British French kind of aristocratic, conflicted, sexy vampire who really doesn't like what they've become, it's this disgusting, rotting, almost zombie-like vampire that looks inhuman and preys on, you could argue, the Aryan German people and is always associated with, with rats and disease. It's not Frank Langella. It's not Bela Lugosi. Right. And that, that I see as endemic to the way that more Germans viewed vampires, which is as a Slavic interloper or Jewish interloper than British and the French who made them into more tragic figures in this era. Um, and then werewolves, on the other hand, which were evil in, Fran in, in France, are these kind of well-meaning or Germanic uh, creatures that are that are tragic and or fight alongside Odin or defend, you know, people from criminals in the forests. And you have Nazis writing dissertations on this. So the werewolf becomes a positive, almost quintessentially Aryan Nordic figure the vampire, a kind of interloper. No wonder at the end of the war, Hitler, Himmler, and Goebbels decide to call their partisan force the werewolves. And, and ethnic Germans are flooding back west from you know, parts of what is now Serbia and other areas. They're claiming to be attacked by Slavic vampires. It fits. Wow. It fits. So that's the, uh, the original werewolf versus vampire that I guess white wolf. <laughs> I call it the last chapter, Nazi Twilight, for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> play on Wagner Gotterdammerung, The Twilight of the Gods, and a contemporary nod to the Twilight series, Vampires Fighting Werewolf. Oh, but did the did these Slavic vampires sparkle? That's the real question. What? That is obvious. <laughs> yeah, I did not see that in the sources, but you never know. Why not? <laughs> sure, they sparkled. 
Well, Eric, thank you so much for talking with us. I, I, I think I, I highly recommend this book to our listeners, and yes. I'll put a link to the show notes. But uh, Very um, important book and a lot yeah. of research. Yeah. Wow. I, I'd love to take one of your classes. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, you all are clearly very well informed yourself, and I really enjoyed uh, what was really a conversation um, with with both of you, uh, Blake and, and Karen. And I, you know, now I'm gonna I'm gonna tune in. Sometimes I want to hear uh, some of the other guests and some of the other stories. Well, I hope you like it. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, we just just did a show on Rasputin, which I think you might like, and that should be coming out soon. Shouldn't it, it should indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if I could stop being the human taxi service. Okay. <laughs> Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with Eric Kurlander about his book, Hitler's Monsters. A link to his book and lots of additional information are in the show notes at monstertalk.org and on Patreon. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and don't necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Longtime listeners to Skeptoid and also to our colleague podcasts often ask, what can I do? We all believe in the value of critical thinking and of the intellectual tools that help us tell fact from fiction. But we don't always know how to best spread those tools to others. Well, let me offer one easy and effective option. Skeptoid Media, that's us, by the way, is currently in production on a feature documentary titled Science Friction about how the media abuses its science experts by misquoting them or editing them out of context, exploiting their reputations to promote sensationalized news or fake documentaries promoting debunked alternative histories. Part of our mission as a nonprofit is that we will retain educational rights to give this movie free to teachers worldwide, alongside complete, professionally produced educational materials to bring formalized lessons in critical thinking and scientific skepticism directly into classrooms. To retain those rights, we're crowdfunding the initial production. We're just about halfway to our goal right now, which you can see at sciencefriction.tv. You want to know what you can do to give the tools to students? This is it. We're asking a basic contribution of $100. If you're on the team, now's the time to take the field and play ball. Please come to sciencefriction.tv and make your tax-deductible donation to Science Friction. 
We ask $100, but any amount helps. Donate enough, you can even become an executive producer and get a legitimate screen credit. ScienceFriction.tv. Watch the promo and see our stories. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. It, it, you, it's, you know, the, I, uh, 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 to you, uh, what? Are you, sorry, 